All right, let's return to Genesis 16 this morning. As you know, God's word exhorts believers to live by faith. But faith is not without its tests and its trials and its crises. It is not always easy to trust God and wait upon his word to be fulfilled. And this is a major motif in the patriarchal stories we find in the book of Genesis. We have seen how the Lord called Abraham to a land of promise where he would be blessed and have many descendants and eventually be a blessing to all nations of the earth. Abraham obeyed that call, but soon after he arrived in the land of Canaan, a severe famine fell upon the land. Instead of calling upon the God and seeking his direction, he went down into Egypt, and we saw where problems developed as a result of that. And the Lord intervened. He brought Abraham out and back to the place of faith and trust. Now, the storyline of chapter 16 follows that pattern of doubt, but now it is Sarah whose faith is in jeopardy. And the issue does not revolve around the land as it did with Abraham, but the promise of descendants. In chapter 15, you'll remember that God promised Abraham that he would have a child from his own body, uh, that the the, uh, descendants would be the number of the stars in heaven, which we can't really count. And that promise had not yet occurred. And humanly speaking, was approaching the time when it could not physically happen through Sarah. Now, this develops, again, another crisis of faith. What will Sarah do? What will Abraham do? Will they patiently wait for the Lord to work? Will they call upon him to give them direction? Or will they devise another human plan to bring resolution to their difficulty. Well, we find they still have not learned that God does not need our help to bring about his promises. They have not yet understood that human schemes and plans to bring about fulfillment to God's word only makes things worse. Fortunately, God sees and hears all that goes on and graciously intervenes to resolve our issues, our messes, and reveals himself here as the God who hears in the name given to Ishmael, and the God who sees in the response of Hagar to his intervention. And how often are we faithless and impatient about how the Lord will help us or meet our needs? When we incur challenges to faith, conflict with others, plans that do not work out the way we think they should, or face just any kind of difficulty or trial life, what do we do? Often we take matters in our own hands instead of calling upon the Lord who sees and hears us, trusting him to work out his promises according to his word and his timetable. So let's, excuse me, let's see what we can learn 
from this chapter this morning. Heavenly Father, we're again thankful that your word is true, that everything that we find in it is for our benefit. And Lord, help us to see that once again, we need to uh, trust you. We need to look to you for guidance and direction and care. And Lord, uh, forgive us when we forget to do this. And we're thankful, Lord, that uh, even when we make choices that mess things up in life, you'll intervene and you'll help us and guide us through those times. Bless us as we look to your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The narrative before us this morning can be divided into two parts. The first lays down for us the circumstances of the lack of faith in God's promises and the human resolution uh, that leads really to tension and conflict. And then the second part, we see that uh, uh, God intervenes and he reveals himself as the God who hears and who sees. And he gives hope and direction to Hagar and clear indication that the human endeavors do not accomplish his will. So first of all, let's take a look at the first six verses here. Our feeble attempts to fulfill God's promises have tragic consequences. So let's take a look here again at the ongoing issue, the ongoing problem. What brought this about? Well, in verse 1, we're reminded once again that Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She is still barren. We've been informed of this from the very beginning in the story of Abraham way back in chapter 11, verse 30. Uh, When God first called Abraham from Ur, Sarah is introduced to us as being barren. And that's when she was about 65 years old. Now, this is the source of an ongoing conflict of faith that's going to come up again. God says that Abraham will have innumerable descendants, but his wife is unable to conceive. So how is it all going to work out? If her condition goes on much longer, she will be beyond the natural capability to do so. And so that's where the conflict now is coming. We're also introduced here to Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant of Sarah. She's not actually a slave, but a personal servant, which was common in the day. And uh, she is below uh, Sarah in status, but she's not below that to the point of being a slave. And conflict is going to develop in this relationship. Hagar's Egyptian heritage is mentioned And uh, this kind of emphasizes a connection to what happened back in Egypt, uh, the challenge of faith that Abram occurred there uh, as he sojourned in Egypt. It may well be that Hagar was acquired by his family as one of the female servants given to him by the Pharaoh. So she now becomes a player in what's going to happen in this story. So we've got a crisis of faith beginning things right off. So what happens? What is the human attempt then to resolve the crisis? Well, Sarah comes up with a plan. Unfortunately, it's a plan that is short on faith. 
She says to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Now, Sarah is aware of what God has revealed to Abraham. She knows that Abraham has promised a child from his own body from the last story we looked at. And at this point, this has not yet occurred. And I'm sure that there is in her mind an insurmountable obstacle. We're told here that this is 10 years after they came into the land. So she is 75, Abram's 85. She may well be experiencing the early stages of menopause. So how is this all going to transpire? She's probably thinking that if she's incapable of childbirth, God did not intend for her to be the one uh, through whom Abraham would have children. And there's a subtle indication here that this is the Lord's fault because he is in control of such things and he's restrained or prevented her from having a child to this point. And so lacking faith or lacking uh, prayer going to the Lord, she thinks that she may not be the one in God's plan, so she devises her own scheme to fulfill God's promise. Now, What is her plan? And we see that Abraham complies to this plan. She's willing for Abraham to have a child by her maid, Hagar. Now, you women would never make a choice like that. Uh, That would be extremely stressful to you. Of course, in our society, uh, that's not the way we do things anyway. But in those days... If the chief wife of the household, Sarah, was unable to have a child, it was possible for the husband to take another wife, even one that is the handmaid or the servant of a current wife, and have a child by that wife-to-be, and the chief mother of the home would take that child as her own and call it her own. And that was acceptable in that society, even though we probably don't agree with that uh, today. So it was extremely embarrassing for a woman to be barren. It cast a shadow upon her. She was looked down on in society and made her feel like a failure. And it was a, a social custom acceptable for a wife to adopt a child from another woman in the greater family. So Sarah says, "Um, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And the word obtain there means to build a family. Of course, we know that's not God's will. They're not really seeking God's will. This is their way of resolving the issue. So she's willing to adopt a native social custom rather than wait upon the Lord or seek him for answers that will bolster her faith. So she is willing to give Hagar to Abram as a secondary wife, a concubine. Now apparently, Abraham has no objections to this plan and he complies with Sarah's will. 
Now, it's interesting that when you think about what happened in the Garden of Eden, we see a parallel. You remember that when Eve took the fruit, she gave it to Adam and he took it from her. Now we see Sarai giving to Abram her maid and he took the maid as another wife. So the same kind of actions going on here, doubting God's word and doing it our own way, thinking we're going to have a good outcome from the situation. Uh, so uh, Abram, verse uh, 3, then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So he agrees with this. He complies with it. Um, where does it say that? Uh, oh, the end of verse 2. Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. So he listened to his wife when he should have taken her side and said, no, this isn't the way God says we should do it. Or uh, let's go to the Lord and let's seek him and, and see if this is what he intended. Maybe he'll give us some more information about it. So in verse 4, he goes uh, into Hagar and she conceives. So it looks like the plan has worked out. A child is coming. But a whole lot of bad things are resulting from this human way of trying to fulfill the will of God. So let's see what happens here. The outcome of this faithless scheme actually results in conflict. Things don't get better, they get worse. And we actually have four negative results of this uh, plan of Sarah and Abraham. Well, what's the first result? Look at 4b. And when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So the first thing we see here is that Hagar develops a bad attitude. When she realizes she's with child, her attitude changes toward her mistress, Sarah. She's lifted up in pride and may well have thought that this would change her status in the home. Maybe now she would have the position of the chief wife, which in society sometimes did occur. So she began to despise Sarah. And that word despise is interesting because it's the same word as curse in chapter 12, verse 3. He who curses Abraham uh, is, not going to, is not going to have a good outcome. And the word curse there means to treat lightly or to be disrespectful. And now Hagar, comparing herself to Sarah, who, who hasn't been able to have uh, a child her whole life, she may well be half the age of Sarah. So she's lifted up in pride and kind of thinking, ha ha, I'm able to do what you haven't been able to do. And uh, uh, she becomes insolent. And this, of course, alienates her from her mistress. The second result is not a whole lot better. In verse 5, Sarah now plays the blame game like uh, like Eve did. Sarah says to Abram, my wrong be upon you. Not me, but upon you. 
And she now realizes her plan did not work out well. Her plan may have been the wrong way to go about it. And she blames Abram instead of confessing her own fault. But Abram also was culpable because he's the head of the home. He heard directly the word of God, and he should have told Sarah, look, I don't think this is what God intends. This isn't the way to go about it and uh, encourage her to keep trusting in the Lord. Or they could have gone to the Lord and inquired uh, uh, him to give them a sign or indication that this was his will. So Sarah genuinely, I'm sure, feels the brunt of Hagar's conceit. She's suffering in the situation. Uh, she's probably being made fun of, maybe sarcasm, that kind of thing. So she's calling on Abraham to do something about the situation, and then she calls upon the Lord as a judge between the two of us. So an adversarial situation develops brought on by Sarah and Abram trying to do God's will in their way instead of his way. Thirdly, in the next verse, we have Abram's weak resolution. His statement, as he says here, indeed, your maid is in your hand, do to her as you please. He is stating the truth that Sarah is still the chief wife uh, and Hagar is in the subservient situation. She's the maid. So you can treat her in that way and you can do uh, to her as you please, but he gives no indication of how she should be treated, how this could come out uh, in a better relationship. He's kind of being passive in it and just saying, okay, you can do what you want. Uh, uh, I'm reassuring you that you are in the uh, place of the first wife. You, you are my true wife and uh, do what you want with Hagar, your maiden. And it really doesn't alleviate anything in this situation. Well, finally, we have the end result in this verse. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So Sarah does not respond properly. Maybe we can understand why she would be this way. It's, it's like fighting fire with fire. Uh, it's uh, you come at me, I come at you. We're not going to resolve the situation. So there's, there's conflict. And she's in the position of authority, so she can make life miserable for Hagar, and she does. And the end result is that Hagar flees. Uh, Sarah only exacerbates the situation uh, with Hagar's rebellious uh, uh, spirit. She finally runs away in desperation. And of course, this is the natural feeling when there's conflict and response uh, to ill treatment. We want to get away from the person who's calling our, uh, causing our problem. So their plan to make matters better, to take things in their own hand, to perhaps fulfill God's promise in their own way of thinking results in a conflict and a big mess. And the Lord witnessed it all. He saw the renewed lack of trust. He saw the improvised plan develop out of an impatient spirit. He saw the consequent development of attitudes that tore the home apart. 
Now he is going to intervene and pick up the broken pieces. And we're reminded that our plans to fulfill God's will in our way are never going to work out for the better. We always need to be seeking his way in these things. So let's look at how things end up. And we see here the God who sees and hears intervenes on our behalf. First of all, gracious intervention by the God who hears in verses 7 through 12. Well, in verse 7, we're informed that Hagar is heading back home. Now, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. This uh, spring is in the vicinity of Shur. This town is on the road to Egypt. She is Egyptian. She's going back home, perhaps to her family. And this is a strong indication to us that God's plan was not Sarah's plan. If God had not intervened, Abram never would have even seen that child because she would be uh, far away. So the Lord comes in the person of the angel of the Lord, to confront Hagar. Now, this is the first of 48 references in the Old Testament to the angel of the Lord. Some believe that these allude to pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Um, That could be. However, when you compare all of these manifestations, they're, they're, they're all quite different. They're not exactly similar. However, there are numerous manifestations of this messenger that uh, clearly indicate the Lord is speaking through him, and sometimes uh, it is as if the Lord is the angel of the Lord. In this case, it's obvious that God is speaking to Hagar, making his will known to her that the angel, which means messenger, is conveying to her the will of God and encouraging her in this difficult time. So how does he address her? And again, isn't it interesting that the angel of the Lord found her, went to her, but he never went to Abraham and he never went to Sarah? They should have probably known better, and they never called upon the Lord to to give them any more information on the situation in the first place. So uh, the Lord uh, comes to her, confronts her, and deals with this situation. And Hagar, really in this whole scenario, has been an innocent pawn, even though she's guilty of developing a sinful attitude. She didn't really have a whole lot of choice about it because of her position in the home. Now, verse 11 tells us, um, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Uh, That indicates that he's been aware of the situation from the beginning. He has heard the planning between Abraham and Sarah. He's heard the insolent words of Hagar toward her mistress. He's heard the harsh words of Sarah towards her maid. But now it seems in this passage that Hagar is starting to 
turn away from that attitude. And it seems that she is now lifting up her affliction to the Lord because the Lord hears her. And he confronts her on the way and he reminds her of her position. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from where you're going? So he reminds her of what her true position is. She is Sarah's maid and she's not where she ought to be and reminds her that, well, this isn't the way things should be. And sometimes it seems easier to run away from the conflict, but that seldom achieves anything. It must be faced in the way that conforms to God's will. Now, Hagar responds by stating what she's doing, and she also verbalizes her position that Sarah is her mistress. So we're getting that relationship a little bit squared away. It won't be perfect, but it'll be better than it was. So the Lord then gives a directive and a promise to encourage Hagar and to give her a hope, some hope as uh, he, he says, you need to go back home and you need to submit yourself to your uh, mistress. Verse 9, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Now, that wouldn't be an easy thing to do. We see the conflict that's developed on both parts, but the Lord's giving her information that she needs to obey. She's been proud. She's been insolent. She needs to be humble and submissive, and she needs to be satisfied with her status in life. But then the Lord gives her another promise that should have been very uh, encouraging is really kind of similar to the words he said to Abraham about the promised son. Of course, this is about the non-elect line of Abraham that would also develop into nations. But look at what he says. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly. So the child is going to live, child's going to be born, and there are going to be many descendants that come through that particular line and he says they shall not be counted for multitude so the same type of promise is given to the non-elect son as was given to the elect son but of course uh, there's going to be conflict that results from this as well as verses 11 and 12 indicate here uh, the lord is comforting her in this situation. He comforts us in our times of distress. But let's see how he works this out, and it it becomes even more specific to Hagar's situation. Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. Now, maybe some of her complaints, some of her affliction, some of the things she was perhaps bringing up to the Lord had to do with, is she going to be able to make it on this journey by herself in the wilderness, fairly far away from where she needs to go? Will the child uh, be, be birthed prematurely? Will some accident happen? So now he says, you shall bear 
a son, which is significant, not a daughter. They were looking for a son. She does have a son. And then God says, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. So there's a relationship there between the name Ishmael and the Lord hearing. Because that's what Ishmael means. God hears. God hears. I've heard your complaint. I've heard your situation. I've heard everything that's been going on here. So you need to understand I am a God who hears. So you name your child Ishmael. And that would be a constant reminder to her her of God being near, God hearing our pleas, God hearing our problems, and God answering them. So, the Lord hears us as well, even when we're guilty of making wrong decisions, even when we mess up, the Lord hears us, and the Lord will deal with us accordingly. And uh, uh, he'll help us to get back on the right pathway when we do. Now, her son will also be a peculiar child. He shall be a wild man. Now, you might have in your margin a different word. You might have the word onager or uh, a wild donkey. That's what the word means. He's going to be like a wild donkey, which in that age was known for its uh, freedom Uh, It was known for its strength and for its wandering nature, going wherever it wanted to. So this person's going to be like that, snorting at the social customs and mores of the day. That will uh, uh, this will cause him to be in conflict with others and they with him. And as a result, he's going to dwell on the outskirts of society. When it says he'll dwell in the presence. Of all his brethren, the word presence there uh, means to be opposite or across from, so kind of away from, and the idea is he's going to be kind of on the outskirts of society in the desert regions, the wilderness. So in the future, there will be conflict between her offspring that will, on occasion, threaten the line of promise. We'll see that develop through Genesis and the other books of the Pentateuch. And folks, that, pre- that friction is still present today as we observe these Arab-Israeli conflicts. It's still going on. Now, come to verses 13 and 14. We have a faithful response to the God who sees. All right, Hagar has uh, realized that this is a God who hears. He hears my cries and my complaints. And now she further manifests her faith. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. This is very interesting because this is the only instance in the Bible where a human being confers a name upon God. Now, that's pretty interesting. Uh, Hagar realizes that she has heard directly a message from the Lord indicating that he has seen her conflict and he's acting on her 
behalf. So she calls him the God, literally, who sees me. The God who sees me. And then she adds, uh, have I also here seen him who sees me? Now, the Hebrew there is difficult. Uh, I read seven translations, and no two of them were exactly the same. But it seems to me that this indicates Hagar's perception of God as the one who looks after her, who sees her so that he can look after her. Some translations, like ours, leave out the word after. Some include it, but they include it in different ways. So she may not have actually seen a manifestation of the Lord, but as the Lord reveals his word to her and she hears that, she's fully aware that he spoke to her, that he cares for her, that he has seen her, that he's looking after her. And she knows he has directly intervened in her life and given her hope and direction in the darkest of trials that will help her in, again, a not so difficult or not so easy future. And that's how the Lord's word ministers to us today, if we will hear it and we'll see it, because there's a lot more evidence than this of God hearing and seeing us. So the well became known as Beer Lahiroi. And that translated means the well of the living one who sees me. And what a reminder this would have been to everyone who came to that well, understanding its name and maybe even knowing the story of how it got named, of God's gracious intervention and care in the lives of those who call upon him because he's the ever-living one who sees everything that's going on. Now the chapter closes with the obedient compliance to the message of the living one who sees. Verse 15. Hagar, so Hagar bore Abram a son. As she goes back, time passes, and the child is brought into the world as God had promised. Um, But, of course, this is not the son of promise, So the tension of faith in that promise is still not resolved. It's going to keep going on. Abraham then, interestingly, named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. So obviously when Hagar came, she told the whole story to the family of how God rescued her there, told her to come back. She needed to be submissive. Things uh, seem to be right at this point. And Abram, in obedience to the revelation of God, names this son Ishmael. Now think about that. They know what that name means. So every time mom calls Ishmael, it's time to eat, or Ishmael do this, or Ishmael do that, what are they hearing? They're hearing the words, God hears. They're being reminded that Jehovah is the God who hears. And would that not have been a rebuke to Sarah every time she heard the name 
Ishmael. Hey, Sarah, God hears. You got to call on him. And when you do, he'll hear you. So it it very likely uh, could have humbled her about her behavior and her treatment of Hagar. Then would Hagar not be remained of the God who hears no matter how mistreated we may feel and also to submit to the authorities that God has placed over me because God hears and I know that whole situation. And then Abraham too, would he not be reminded that he needed to call upon the God who hears and sees to help him in his times of doubt instead of making his own plans with his wife? So God has taught them through this that he doesn't need our help to fulfill his purposes and his plans in the world. What he requires is our faith, our obedience, and our patience. And that's not always easy, is it? So let's draw some thoughts here from what's going on. First of all, the passage reminds us that God sees and hears everything He sees us in our homes, in our relationships. He sees into our very hearts and minds, our innermost being, which we don't always open up to people. God sees it. He knows what we think. He knows what our attitudes are. He knows the words that we say that are harsh and unkind, that are proud, that are critical, that are griping, that are complaining. He knows it all. And wrong attitudes, as we've seen, produce wrong actions They produce conflict rather than peace. So we would do well to be sure, thinking God hears, God sees, of keeping our attitudes and our actions obedient to his word. And then we also see here that God is always gracious to us, even when we mess up. He's he's ready to forgive, to give us direction, to put us back on the path of faith and hope and trust. It's a hard lesson to learn. We often fail, but we need to let God do his work in his time. God also hears us and sees us not only when we do wrong, but in times of affliction. And we all know that sometimes we bring difficulty and conflict upon ourselves through our wrong actions and attitudes, but he still hears us. He helps us clean up the mess. And there are a lot of other times in life when uh, we're facing problems and hardships and decisions and difficulties. They, They weigh down on us, but he hears our prayers, our groans for help and sustenance, And it may not seem like he does. It may take a while for things to work out, but he's there. And we need to trust him. And we need to be patient that he will work them out according to his plans and his purposes. And finally, we cannot advance God's kingdom in the arm of the flesh, although we try to do so. Churches devise many programs and schemes that they believe will increase their numbers or or open opportunities for witness. And although these may not be wrong in themselves, we do not put our trust in our human attempts, our human programs to reach the world for Christ. We must depend on God to fulfill his purposes by his means as we faithfully obey the directives of his word. 
So let's not be like Sarah and Abram in this instance. Let's be a little more like Hagar, although she too manifested wrong attitudes She eventually was forced to go to the Lord and call upon him who sees and hears all things. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful today that you are the God who hears and who sees. You hear and see the good, you hear and see the bad. And you're always there, Lord, for us to call upon you to give direction and comfort in times of difficulty and affliction. Help us, Lord, uh, to always view you in this way. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, as we close this morning, let's be reminded of who God is, uh, 287. <clears throat> so let's stand together as we sing a couple stanzas. <clears throat> Understanding that the Lord is always there for us. 287.